Hey, it's uh, great to be here. It was great to be at the Equip this week. How many of you got a chance to go to at least uh, one session during the week? Awesome. The rest of you asked these guys what went on, and uh, it was great. Um, I'll tell you what, before I say anything, it's just an absolute privilege. Uh, sometimes I ask myself, why in, in God's green earth am I the one up here talking uh, there's some of you that have loved Jesus longer than I have. There's some of you that know more about the Bible than I do. Uh, there's some of you that are more passionate than I am. And um, I don't know why, but God calls us to do something. This is what I'm supposed to do. So ask yourself, what are you supposed to do in God? What are you supposed to do in the kingdom? Because most of you don't want to be up here. Most of you don't want to be elders uh, or deacons because God hasn't called you there. And so find out. Find out what God wants for you to do. And it doesn't matter your age. Sometimes God changes our season. Sometimes he calls us into something new. It's like a new chapter. It's not the end of the book. It's just the end of a chapter and you move on to uh, what God has for you. But it's, it's, I just want to say it's a privilege to be here. I don't take it lightly. Terry and I don't take it lightly that we have the opportunity to minister and uh, it is a, a privilege uh, to be here. We love you guys. We pray for you. Our church prays for you. And uh, we love this partnership that we do have. And if you're newer here uh, to Oceanside, I, I just want to say this. This is a safe place for you. This is a safe place where you can take steps and people will not uh, push you back or push you down. They'll encourage you to take your next step and your next step and your next step. Uh, this is a safe place to be who you are in Christ and to grow in Him and and all those things. We know the leadership here. We love Mike and Deb and the, and the leadership team here. And, and this is a good place where you're going to grow in the Word of God. You're going, to, you're going to grow and be challenged in your walk with God. And uh, to grow and to use your gifts to serve others and to move in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's a, it's a great thing. So, uh, let me see. Um, I have a, a quick word for, for you. This morning, um, and I just I just want to go through it briefly. Moses is having this conversation with God, and he finally says, "God, listen, I don't want to go anywhere without you going before me. I don't want to get ahead of you, God. And so, without your presence, I don't want to go anywhere without your presence. Sometimes we get ahead of God, right? So this is not a rebuke to Oceanside or to you individually. It's not a warning. It's just a reminder, all right? It's a reminder that we don't want to do anything without the presence of God going uh, before us. And so, in anything that we look behind us that is, is uh, good or it's an accomplishment or something, we didn't do that either. He did it through us. It's like the mouse and the elephant walking across the bridge. And the mouse looks up at the elephant and says, Boy, we sure shook that bridge, didn't we? Like this. And so sometimes we think that God and us are on equal plane, partners, you know. And it's, it's God that's doing it. And we just want to be his vessels. So here's the word for you. Know and rely on the power and presence of Almighty God to go before you in all that you do. That's the word here. And then Psalm 127 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And so we want it to be God's construction work in our life and in the life of the church. Amen? Amen. All right, I'm going to talk to you uh, in the next few minutes here uh, about having a heart that's fully after God. 
And uh, I, I grew up um, in a Christian home from the time I was about seven on. I uh, lived in a Christian home and uh, learned about Jesus, and I learned a lot of rules. My dad was a pastor, and he loved God, and he wanted to tell people about Jesus. And, and he, he, um, he was uh, in love with missions and world missions, and, and uh, he went to Wheaton College in the 1940s, and he, his friends there were those five missionaries that were killed in Ecuador in the, in, in the, in the, in the 50s. And um, I grew up with the stories and of uh, you know missionaries rolling out thirty foot python skins down the aisle of our church and oh like this, I want to go to Africa and lions and and uh, telling people about Jesus I grew up as a teenager I wanted to be a missionary pilot and that never happened and um, it's probably a good thing uh, wouldn't be around today probably if that happened but uh, uh, I, I just love that but in our church with all the foundation of the Word of God. I went to Awana every Friday night uh, from the time I was seven uh, till 14, and I always won all the Bible memory verses, and so, you know, hundreds and hundreds of verses and have this good foundation. Uh, in our church, there was a lot of this thing we call legalism, a lot of rules, and so we'd be on vacation, and it would be a nice summer day like this. We'd be at the lake uh, with uh, our family's best friends were Terry's family, and so she and I met when we were five and seven, and and we got really mature and serious when we were 13 and 15 because we knew better and we've been best friends since that time. And, uh, but it would be Sunday and we'd be on vacation and we'd want to go in the water. And my parents said, nope, can't go. Sunday, it's the Sabbath. And you can't go swimming on Sunday. And we'd, we'd go, why? Why can't we? Because it's the Lord's Day. And, and my brother and I go, in our reasoning, we go, it's hot. Jesus would want to go swimming. I'm sure he would want to. And, uh, you know, it didn't fly very well. So <clears throat> here's what happened. In the late 1800s in the United States, we had what was called the Second Great Awakening. And there was a huge evangelistic thrust all across the nation. And there were hymn writers, songwriters, writing songs. And it, like, we look at these as the old-time hymns, the Old Rugged Cross and Ferris Lord Jesus and, and uh, uh, Make Me a Blessing and you know, some of those. But that was cutting-edge teenager, young people worship in those days. And there was this huge revival. Well, then those people grew up loving Jesus, and then their kids grew up, and that, their kids were the uh, World War I generation, and then their kids grew up. And, and, and by then it begins to wane, and, and there's not the fervency anymore that there used to be. And things just kind of get routine and, and, and get um, just ritualistic and legalistic. So when I'd ask my parents pointed questions like, why, why can't we do that? If I knew then what I knew now, I would have been in big trouble because I would have really challenged my dad on some things and say, uh, you know, tell me where it is in your King James Version of the Bible, and, and, uh, which I love, King James Version of the Bible. Uh, but uh, that's what happens. We get radically saved. We fall in love with Jesus. We're passionate about Jesus. And then we just, even in our own lives, we can just slip into this, 
ho-hum, just routine of a life that's not really impacting anything. And, and what we were once fervent about, we're not anymore. And if you're a Christian, if you love Jesus, you can identify with that. That might happen in one single day. You might have a great time in the morning with the Lord, and by the end of the day, you're like, ah, oh, like this. It's just, you're so far off. We've got to constantly keep going back. So I want to uh, point some stuff out for you here. Uh, and I've entitled my talk today, A First Generation Heart, first generation heart. So in Joshua chapter 24, here's what happened. Joshua was now older. Joshua had had taken over from Moses, the leadership of the nation, years earlier. And he was was about to die now. He was about to go. They conquered the land, the promised land. It was theirs now. And everybody, all the land had been divvied up and, and things like this. And so here's what it says in Joshua 24, but first, Lord, open our eyes, open our hearts to your word today. Father, I pray that you would speak to each one of us. Maybe it was a phrase in a worship song or a, a greeting already that you've impacted us, but impact us according to your word today and the message you have for us, we pray. Your word says that your Holy Spirit would lead us and guide us into all truth, and we know you're here, O oh God, so please do that in Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, Joshua 24, 31, Israel, this is the nation of Israel, served the Lord. They loved God. They saw these mighty miracles that he, that he brought them through. They, the, the walls of Jericho came crashing down. They crossed the Jordan River, and, and, and uh, they defeated armies, and the sun stood still for three hours. As Joshua holds his hands up, and the sun, I mean, God does amazing things. And they served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua that had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. And then we go over into Judges, just that's the end of Joshua, then we go into Judges. And seven times in chapter 1, it says they did not drive out the inhabitants of the land. The Israelites were called to go in and take the promised land and and. And that's a picture for us. When we get saved, we're supposed to take the land, and we're supposed to drive out all the sin, all the old stuff. And, there, and there's a miracle at the beginning, but then we have, have this ongoing fight uh, to get rid of these things that God has called us to conquer. And uh, seven times it says they did not drive out the inhabitants of the land. And then in Judges chapter 2, it kind of rehashes a bit. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel, each one to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And down in verse 10, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So it just took a couple generations, and boom, it's all forgotten. And they didn't know that. And so we know that without God, victory is impossible. And we know that uh, we look around in our culture today. Recent polls uh, say that uh, among evangelicals, people who say they love Jesus and have repented of their sin and and made him uh, Lord of their life, 68% of evangelicals in North America say that there are other ways to God besides Jesus. Two-thirds of evangelicals say that there's other ways to God besides Jesus. 
And the majority don't believe that the Bible is the infallible word of God anymore. And so it doesn't take long. A couple generations ago, this was not so in our culture. And so uh, we want to build something that lasts. So I just want to uh, show you this little chart here. It's first, second, and third generations Christians. Just what we read out of, out of uh, uh, Joshua and Judges. The first generation Christians or believers or God followers are people who know God and they know his works. Now, if you're of the first generation in your family, when you came to him, you knew God. You knew him. And you knew him working in your life, and and you saw things that were not possible being done. You know God, and you know his works. And then the second generation comes along, and they know God. They love God, but they know about his works. They're God lovers, Jesus lovers, but they don't see the power and presence of God moving in their life like the generations before them did. And then the third generation comes along, and they know about God, yeah, yeah, Grandpa, he loves God, you know. And they know about his works. Do you see how that slips so quickly? We have a few examples in Scripture. We have David and Solomon and Rehoboam. David had a whole heart, and Solomon had a half heart, and Rehoboam had no heart. If you ever did walk through the Bible uh, seminars. Uh, then we have um, uh, our fathers, that's Gamaliel and Paul, Uh, Paul says this in Acts 22, I am a Jew born in Tarsus, brought up in the city under Gamaliel, who was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers, and just as zealous for God as any of you are today. So here's three generations there. We see um, in 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul says, things you have heard in me, uh, teach these to faithful men, reliable men, who are able to teach others also. So you have you and reliable men and then others. That's another example of first, second, third generation. Then probably the the most famous one is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You have uh, uh, Abraham, the father of our faith, He says yes to God. God calls him to go to a country that he doesn't know. What would you do today if God said, I want you to go, and I'm not telling you where you're going. You just get ready, and you start going. That's why Abraham is called the father of faith. He goes, okay, I don't know where I'm going, but I know I've heard your voice, and I'm going. I'm not being presumptuous. I'm not getting ahead of you. I'm with you here, Lord. And then Isaac comes along. And then by the time Jacob rolls around, Jacob's the schemer. You know, he's the conniver. And uh, Jacob was third generation until that night that he wrestled with God all night long. And it impacted his life so much that God changed his name from Jacob the schemer to Israel, which means ruled of God. He became first generation because he encountered God. And, and Paul, the great apostle, he, he was educated under Gamaliel and the fathers and all this, and he thought he had it all. He knew about God and he knew about his works, but he didn't have this close, intimate relationship with Jesus. And on that road to Damascus, the power of God knocks Paul off his horse, or if he's walking, I don't know, but he's knocked to the ground, he's blinded, and... and, and um, and, and, and Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and, and Saul, whose name was changed to Paul, 
uh, he realized in that instant, he realized at that moment that everything that he had lived for, everything he stood for, everything that he valued, everything that he planned his life around, everything that he, that he worked for so, so vigorously and fervently in his life, it was absolutely meaningless, meaningless and it meant nothing. And he had no hope of salvation without the grace of God and the mercy of God intervening in his life. And, and Paul stood up from there and he was changed from that point to the rest of his life till they cut off his head decades later. He never wavered. He served Jesus. He, was, he became first generation by encountering Almighty God. Isn't that amazing? We can't live on past victories, even in our own life. We can't live on our parents or those who have gone before us, their victories and their, their uh, advancement in the kingdom. So um, this can happen over a lifetime or over generations. And so uh, I want to just instruct us, give us a few ideas this morning. Uh, on how we can become first-generation Christians. In Luke chapter 6, verse 40, uh, the Bible says, A student, this is NIV, I love this version, a student, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. A student, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. And so we have this obligation as people. And so a few thoughts on this. Number one, refocus, refocus. Now, when I say refocus, I'm talking about being intentional, about, about bringing the next generation along. We're called to be salt and light in this world. Uh, we're called to, that's leadership, by the way. We're all called to be leaders in our culture. doesn't mean leaders in the church. We're all called as leaders in our culture. How can you be salt and light if you're not being an example and showing the way? And so we have this obligation to make a way for the generation to follow us and uh, I just want to say this. There is, a big, there is a big target on your back. If you are a Jesus lover, the devil hates you. Just settle that in your heart. He's not going to ever give you one ounce of respect, or he's not going to give you an inch, or he's not going to say, okay, if you leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. He's a big liar, and he will always be after you. But I want to tell you this, that the target on your kids' backs is bigger than your target. It really is. He'll do everything he can to take them out, to discourage them, to ruin them, to cause them to drift away. So parents, I want to say this. In this church, and I'm submitting this to the elders, in this church, the kids' ministry is not the first line of defense. Parents are the first line of defense in kids' ministry. They are the kids' ministry. This church is assisting parents in that first line of defense. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, it says, Fix these words of mine in your heart. And mind, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. That means whatever you do and whatever you think, teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates, so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land that the Lord swore to give your forefathers, as many as the days that the heavens are above the earth." You have a responsibility, parents, to train your children in the ways of the Lord. Sometimes we get a little sidetracked because the culture says, no, you need to be taking them to this, 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 and this. You need to get ready for this, 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 and this. You need to, you know, it's so interesting, parents, how we, we watch their physical progress and we watch their academic progress. 
We want to know. We take them to the doctor. We do the little measuring things on the house, you know, how they're growing. And, and we want to know that they're growing physically. We want to know how their report card looks like and, and what they're doing in school. But we forget about their emotional and their social and their spiritual growth. Those things are just left to whatever. And those are the things where your heart is. That's where your heart is. And that's what we're called to train our kids. And the second line of defense, by the way, are grandparents and aunties and uncles and big brothers and sisters and people in the household of God who, aren't you glad that when your kids are in a church like this, they have a whole bunch of grandmas and grandpas and they have a whole bunch of aunties and uncles and they have a community where it's safe. And so the second big one is to reteach. The first one was to refocus. That means being intentional on raising the next generation. The next big point is reteach. And we often forget that we, when we learn something once, it doesn't mean that we will remember it tomorrow. I used to be a teacher and then a principal and then a superintendent. And never once did we have a teacher suggest this. Oh, we taught third grade last year. We don't have to teach that again this year. We've already done that. We've already gone through that. And um, they'll, you know, they'll pick it up from the others that have already gone through that. Uh, no, we've got to constantly. And so as a pastor of a local church, to me, it's like preaching to a train, and I'm not on the train. The train is moving, a slow-moving train. Hey, do you know Jesus? You know, he, you can make him Lord of your life. And, you know, he came to set you free. And, oh, that's great. You're growing, and you're moving, and you're learning. Uh, wait a minute. Do you know Jesus? And, and I want to tell you about him, what he can do. And, and, and you're growing, and, and you're learning about him. And uh, Wait a minute. Now let me, like this. This is what it's like. We're all, they're always coming through. We always have, we have to reteach, retrain, reteach all the time. We can't just say we did it once and it's going to happen again. We don't do that in education. Um, Second Timothy 4, Paul says this, And so I solemnly urge you before God and before Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he appears to set up his kingdom, preach the word of God. Be persistent, whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct and rebuke and encourage your people with good teaching. Parents, you're teaching your kids. All this applies to you as parents. It applies to connect group leaders. It it applies to teachers uh, and the elders. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to right teaching. They'll follow their own desires and they'll look for teachers who will tell them whatever they want to hear. And the final point I have, big point today, is return. Return to God. And the final point has seven points under it. So we're going to fly through these, all right? First one is, how do we return to God? Well, the Bible, just just uh, uh, not Google it, but search it in your Bible program or something. And there's a lot of ways to return to God. So here's a few of them. Number one, obey. In Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 9. But if you return to me and obey my commands, even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I'll bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. We know that obedience is a big deal. Have you ever heard of the, the book, uh, The Five Love Languages? It's for you know, husbands and wives, and you learn what, what their love language is, and some of it's gifts, some of it's uh, time, and some of it's 
touch, and some of it's, I don't, I don't remember all of them, but uh, Terry told me that hers are all of them. So, all of them. I just have to do all of them, and I'll be okay. And um, so sometimes what we feel love with, we, we want to love others that way. No, we've got to find out what, how they feel love and love them that way. And so did you know that Jesus has a love language too? He said, if you love me, obey my commandments. You love Jesus? His love language is obedience. Oh, no, I thought just I could love Jesus and, and, and my whole life I could just float and enjoy and just be in his presence and never have to know. Jesus actually said, obey my commands. We did a series a few years ago, and we did a, uh, like seven or eight months. There's a whole lot of commands. There's a whole lot of commands that Jesus gave. And he said, if you love me, you obey these commands. No, no, that's the law. No, Jesus commanded. He said, return to me. He said, love me. He said, he said love God. He said, give and it shall be given unto you. He said, you know, all kinds of stuff. Just go in there and find out all the commands of Jesus. Uh, actually, John Piper wrote a book on it. And um, you can find that and study that. Number two, how do we return to God? Wholeheartedly. Jeremiah 24, 7. I will give them hearts that will recognize me as the Lord. They'll be my people and I'll be their God for they will return to me wholeheartedly. That means we are all in. If you heard my preach the other night, we are all in. I'm not holding anything in reserve. I'm not holding anything back. When I love you, Jesus, it's all of me. All of me. How do we return to him? Number three, quit sinning. Zechariah 1, 3 through 4. Therefore tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says, return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I'll return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your forefathers to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices, but they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. You know, sin is, is, sin is a, a touchy thing because... On one hand, we're sinners, saved by grace. And on the other hand, we're, we're new creations. So we're not sinners anymore. That's not our identity. Our identity is in Christ now. But the fact is, we have this body of flesh that we have to struggle with uh, till the day we die. But here's, here's the wonderful thing. You don't have to even know how to read to know what's sin, because God put his moral law on your heart. And it's not trust your heart, it's trust the moral law in your heart. Every culture around the world, it's wrong to commit murder. It's wrong to, it's, it's wrong to steal. We, we know with these things. And Jesus said this, he goes, if you don't like rules, if you don't like rules, just, just follow this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. On this, hang all the law on the prophets, Paul said. You don't have to, if, you, if, you, if you're like me, I don't like rules. And that's not always a good thing. But like this week, what did I do? I took my name tag and I wrapped it around and let it hang down here. I just, I just don't like rules. And um, you might not like me anymore for that. But, but all you have to do is love God with everything. And love your neighbor as yourself. And you don't have to worry about rules. Rules? Where we're going, you don't need rules, all right? Because you're loving God, and you're loving your neighbor as yourself, all right? So, quit your sinning. 
Number four, how do we return to God? Get rid of your idols. Jeremiah 4.1. If you return, O Israel, return to me, declares the Lord. If you put your detestable idols out of my sight and no longer go astray. In chapter 4, verse 2, and if you swear by my name alone and you begin to live good, honest lives, uphold justice, then you will be a blessing to the nations of the world and all the people will come and praise my name. I don't know if any of us or too many of us have idols that people used to bow down and worship to. But we have idols. An idol is anything that comes between you and God. Sometimes your spouse can be an idol, or looking for a spouse can be an idol. You think about that more than you do about your relationship with Jesus. Sometimes our kids can be an idol. In our culture, our kids can be an idol. And, and, and I know that we're called to raise them up and to train them. But I want to tell you, parents, the best thing you can do for your kids, the best thing you can do for your kids is to have a good marriage, to have a strong household where mom and dad love Jesus passionately. Because you're going to be, you committed to each other, you committed to God before, God and men, that you would uh, tell death do us part. Your kids, you're training them to release them. Best thing you can do for your kids is have a good marriage. And there's, there's so many things that take up our time and our passions. Don't let your hobbies or your career or things come. Yes, you got to work. A lot, a lot of you work 40-hour-a-week jobs. And, and that takes a lot of your time. But that's, don't let that come between you and your relationship with God. Martin Luther said that a, a good shoemaker, a Christian shoemaker, is not somebody who puts a symbol a religious symbol on their shoes. A Christian shoemaker is somebody who makes good shoes. So whatever God's called you to do, you do it to the best of your ability, but don't let it become an idol. Do it as unto the Lord. How do we return to him? With our money? Money somehow is an indicator of our heart. Malachi Chapter 3, verse 7, Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees, and you have not kept them. Return to me, and I'll return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? And he says this question, will a man rob God? But you, the whole nation of you, has robbed me of my tithes and offerings. Now, some people might say, oh, well, that's the law. That's the law. Yeah, it was part of the law, but tithing was instituted over 400 years before the law with Abraham, who is the father of faith. Moses is the lawgiver. That was 400 years later. Abraham instituted this tithe that's giving to God what belongs to him. And and, and the, the prophet here, Malachi, goes on to say, you test me in this. Try me. And see if I won't open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing that you cannot contain. I will rebuke the devourer on your behalf. You know what the devourer is? The devourer is your hot water tank blowing up. Uh, The devourer is your kids needing new shoes every three months. The devourer is your transmission going on, on the freeway, you know, breaking like this and you have a trail of... Two kilometers of gears and bolts and nuts. That's a devourer. The children of Israel were in the, in the, in the uh, desert for 40 years. You know what it says? It says their, 
their clothes didn't wear out, their sandals didn't wear out, their tents didn't wear out. Just think, ladies, you couldn't go shopping for 40 years because nothing ever needed to be replaced, all right? And so that was God rebuked the devourer on their, on their behalf, and nothing wore out. And here's the great thing. You know the only two survivors of that 40 years? Joshua and Caleb, remember? They obeyed God. They had the faith to go into the promised land. You know what? They didn't wear out either. Caleb said, I, at 80, 85 years old, he goes, I'm as strong today as I was then. My eyes are as sharp as they were then. And let me go up and take this mountain. That was, that's an amazing thing. So God will rebuke the devourer on our, our behalf when we trust him with our finances. And just, just one more little thing. The, even if you do think it's law, we're, we're not under the law. No, we're not. We're under grace, the new covenant. But let me ask you this about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant says, thou shalt not murder, right? What does the New Covenant say? You can't even hate your brother or that's murder. Which one is more difficult? This is tough. The New Covenant is tough. Do you know why? Because it deals with your heart. The, The Old Covenant deals with your actions. The Old Covenant says, don't commit adultery. The New Covenant, Jesus said, don't even look on someone with lust or you've committed adultery in your heart already. Which one is more difficult? Our heart issues. God's always interested in our hearts. And so that includes our, our money as well. And then the promises. Test. We had a pastor once who said, you, you, if, you, if you're not a tither, if you don't believe in that, if you don't want to trust God with your finances, if you, if you don't want to do that, just try it for six months. Six months. And if at the end of six months you feel that you're worse off because you honored the Lord with your first fruits, we will pay you back every penny that you paid. You know what? Over the years, we never had one person ever ask for their money back. Because when you trust God with your finances, God's promise is uh, that he will multiply. He will rebuke the devourer, and he'll pour out for you a blessing that you can't contain. All right? Number six, how do we do this? How do we return? Well, we return to our first Love, and this is what we're closing with here. Revelation 2. Jesus is writing letters to the churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus writes. Now, some people say the angel of the church of Ephesus is the, is the visionary leader, the pastor, or whatever, or it's their, it's their just, it doesn't really matter, but it's to the church in Ephesus. Now, this is 45 years after Paul was in Ephesus, and this Ephesus church was a powering church. They were making a difference. They, they, they were doing amazing things. They loved God, the, the church in the Ephesians. And now 45 years later, when John, the apostle, is at the end of his life, all the other apostles are all dead and gone, God writes this church to Ephesus, and he says this, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds. Your hard work and your perseverance. Well, that sounds pretty good. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men and that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and you have not grown weary. Those things seem good to me. That seems pretty good. You've not grown weary in well-doing. These are commendations. Yet, I have this against you. You have forsaken 
your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you don't repent, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, take away your impact and your effectiveness. And you'll have this long slip slide into mediocrity and ineffectiveness. Some of you guys, how did you treat your wife when you first fell in love with her? And how do you treat her now? Have you left your first love? When we look at how we love Jesus, Jesus, I'll do anything for you. I'll give everything I had. I have. Because usually they're younger people and they don't have anything anyway. So I'll give you everything. <laughs> we start to get stuff. All right? Start to get stuff and accumulate a little bit. And Have we left our first love? Newlyweds. Honey, will you get me a cup of coffee? Sure, honey, I'll bring you a cup of coffee. <laughs> and then 35 years later, it's, honey, will you bring me a cup of coffee? Get it yourself. <laughs> get me one, too, while you're at it. I like this. I mean, what would we do? We'd cross any ocean, ford any river, climb the highest mountain, because we're in love. Are we in love with Jesus today? And has that effect? Have we just gotten busy with life? Have we slipped from first to second to third generation? Do you know how you get back on track? Is you encounter Jesus afresh. You get into his word and see the magnificent pictures of who he is, what he's done for us. We get up in the morning, we look in the mirror, and we preach the gospel to ourselves, and we look at each other, yourself, and you say, this is a person who is in desperate need of a Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for coming out of eternity into time and space so we could understand who you are and what you're like. Thank you for living a sinless life. You're preaching to yourself. Thank you for dying on the cross for me and my wickedness. I have failed you so many times. Thank you that all that has been paid for, past tense. I don't have to pay for it. I don't have to feel guilty for it now. I just have to be aware of it. I have to admit it. I have to give it to you and move on. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for setting me free. Thank you, thank you for giving me a purpose and, 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 a, and a job to do in this life to impact people's lives. Thank you that I might have profile or I don't have profile. You've called me and you've gifted me for a specific purpose. And what my passion is usually is what you've called me to do. Thank you, Jesus. I'm going to live for you today. I want to encourage you to preach the gospel to yourself every day. And then go out and live a life worthy of your calling. Mike had a powerful preach on Friday night. It was amazing uh, about the, the, the seriousness and the, uh, of our call the, the, and being worthy of the call that God has for us. One of my favorite sayings is on the tombstone of Leonard Ravenhill. It's in Tyler, Texas. You can go there today. Um, and it says this. Is the life you're living worth what Christ died for? Jesus died for you. Is the life you're living worth that? Or are you flaunting it and making just nothing out of it? Cheapening the price that he paid for us. 
It, it, to me, it's amazing. We have to return to our first love. We have to encounter Jesus. And then he goes on and says, how do we do that? We do the things we did at first. What did we used to do? What did we, how, how do we used to read our Bible? How, how do we used to worship? How do we used to tell people about Jesus? How do we used to, to, to depend on his grace to be patient with others and, and to represent the, the, the love and goodness of God in our sphere of innocence? How do we used to return to that, he says. Return to that. It's an, it's an amazing thing. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone be in Christ, they're a new creature. They're a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. We can get back to this first generation, this newness, this refreshment that we can find in his presence. We really can. This church has a call on it and a destiny on it, and each one of you is needed. If you're part of Oceanside, if you're part of Oceanside, this church needs you. You may not be visible. You, you may be very visible, but we all need to work together. If you have a, a, a jigsaw puzzle with a 1,000 pieces in it, and 999 pieces are in place where they're supposed to be, and one is missing, which is the first one you notice? The one that's not there. You're noticed. You're missed. Really, you are. It's coming up to summertime. I'm sure that the elders would tell you, if you're going to go on vacation, go rest well. Go recreate in God. Spend time in his presence. Come back strong. But when you're here, be here. When you're here in town, be here. It's a big deal. We miss you when you're not here. And God's called us for a purpose. And God's called this church for a purpose. And I honestly believe that this church is on the precipice of your next big leap and big step in God. And it's going to take all hands on deck. Wonderful. It's going to take all hands on deck. Yeah. So, are you a first generation believer? Or are we slipping? Father, thanks for this word today. I, my intention, Lord, is not to be anything but representing your heart to draw people to you, to this close, intimate relationship with you. Jesus, we don't want to operate in our own strength. We don't want to go uh, before you. We want your power and your presence to work in our lives. We need your grace to live day to day, to raise the kids, to work in a job, to engage our neighbors, all these things. We desperately need you, but we can't do it without you, and we don't want to do it in our own strength. We want you, God. Return us to our first love, we pray in Jesus' name. Wonderful. Amen. Thank you, Stevie.